Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. And it was actually my husband who got me into the sport. I was riding on the back with him and was just very uncomfortable, not having a lot of fun. And he said, well, you know, you can get your own bike, right? And I said, no, no, I, I, I didn't know that. Like, I didn't think that I could do that because I was this girly girl, you know? I, I love heels and shopping and makeup and the motorsports industry and especially motorcycling at that time very much marketed to men because men made up a huge percentage of the motorcycling industry and population. And so they didn't market to women. And so, no, I, I didn't think that it was something that I could do because I had never seen myself for people like me in their marketing. It was never a focus. And so when my husband said, you can do this, it took that encouragement from him to get into it. And so part of what has been, I think, a big platform for me is to try to get the message out there that women are this great demographic to tap into. Welcome, listeners, to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR. And as always, I'm joined by my wonderful colleague, Fletcher Senior Strategist, Mary Beth West. Hey there, Kelly. It's great to see you in the flesh here. And it's a time of being grateful and Ooh, pumpkin well, I, spice everything. Yeah, I will take some pumpkin spice in the year of COVID. I mean, we need <laughs> something warm and welcoming. And in, uh, in, in this time, it's um, gosh, what a year it's been, right? It has been a crazy year. And I think that's why it's more important than ever for us to take some time and to figure out what we are grateful for in this crazy year. Yeah. So that's one thing that's on my list is to make sure that I write in my gratitude journal every day. Yeah. Well, one thing that I'm really grateful for is the fact that we have such a great team and the fact that we have one of those team members here with us today to be able to talk about her work and a lot of the things that she has done, not only personally, that in terms of some of her personal interests, but how she's integrated that into her work, not only to the public relations industry, but just the things that we're you know trying to do in service to client success. And so we're so excited to be able to welcome Sarah Merrill to the conversation today. And Kelly, you and I have been talking for months now, actually, about having Sarah on. Yes. Sarah manages a lot of high-level strategy and execution for our clients, particularly in the digital and social media space, and then also in the media relations space. That's right. And what's interesting is that Sarah came to you actually through my team yes. you know, when you and I sort of joined forces a couple of years ago and I had sold my company to you. Sarah came on board with your team. She had, had worked with my group for a couple of years. And uh, I want to tell just a little bit about her past experience. She has more than a dozen years of experience in marketing as well as in business. And what's interesting about some of her past background is that she actually has something of a financial background. She began her career as a financial analyst before transitioning into marketing management, which of course she brings that quantitative side. And it's so great because she is such a creative thinker and yet she has that really analytical side to her perspective. And I, that's really a rare quality. That's not something that you 
find very often. No, it's not. And uh, <laughs> uh, this sounds like the Sarah Merrill commercial. <laughs> um, and we don't care. Uh, because... Yeah, because we can make it be that <laughs> since exactly. it's our podcast. Exactly. But um, I remember you telling me, Mary Beth, that Sarah was a rock star. And also she has an MBA. So right. I think that brings in a unique perspective to how she helps solve and deliver results for our clients. Some of the other areas where she has worked, she has become very well known with getting involved in community and public service initiatives. Also, she, uh, before she even came here, she was part of the Asheville, North Carolina, 40 under 40 and was involved in young professionals there. And just last year, she was named one of Knoxville's 40 yes. under 40. So she's really racked up a lot of these yes, industry she, recognitions. She does, she does. So wherever she goes, it seems like people are really recognizing the acumen that she brings to her work. And it just brings a lot of pride to us. Yeah. And we connect because we're both Carolina girls too. So, and There's Western that. North Carolina girls at that. WNC, rock oh, on. Well, thank you so much for the glowing introduction. I, I appreciate that. I'm blushing. <laughs> yeah. Sarah's a lot quieter than Mary Beth and I, so <laughs> we have to, might have to turn your mic up a little bit. Yeah. No, so Sarah, tell us about your background riding motorcycles, because if, if you've ever seen Sarah, if you go and follow her on Instagram and you look at her, she does not look like the kind of chick, I, 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 that sounds so stereotypical. She does not look like she should be right. Motorcycle chick. She doesn't look like a biker chick at all. And um, But yet she races motorcycles and she kicks ass. And then she's kind of turned it into her own influencer platform, which I think may have happened a little bit by accident, Sarah. How did, right. how did that transpire? Well, well and, and that's part of the, you know, the big part of the conversation that we really wanted to focus on today is this whole idea of influencer marketing and the fact that here we have on our team an influencer in such an interesting space, you know, you know, women who are enthusiasts in, you know, the motorcycle or motors, you know, What's right. the best way to say it? Is it mo motorcycle sports? Yeah. Uh, Enthusiast mo space, motorsports? Exactly. Motorsports. Yeah. I, I would say, and, and motorcycling. And yeah, yeah. So I, I got started in motorcycling. It's been 11 years. And it was actually my husband who got me into the sport. I was mm -hmm. riding on the back with him and was just very uncomfortable, not having a lot of fun. And he said, Well, you know, you can get your own bike, right? And I said, no, no, I, I, I didn't know that. Like, I didn't think that that's I allowed. Could, right? I, I didn't think that I could do that because I was this girly girl. You know, I, I love heels and shopping and makeup and um, the motorsports industry and especially motorcycling uh, at that time, very much marketed to men because men made up a huge percentage of the motorcycling industry and population. And so they didn't market to women. And so, no, I, I didn't think that it was something that I could do because I had never seen myself or people like me in their marketing. It was never a focus. And so when my husband said, you can do this, it, it took that encouragement from him to, to get into it. And so uh, part of what has been, I think, a big platform for me is to try to get the message out there that women are this great demographic mm -hmm. to tap into. 
And and since then, I have seen brands become more open to marketing to women. And I think they're beginning to see that women can play a big role in this industry and they can be a target demographic and a growing demographic. And that women, even if they're girly, they can like this sport. And so I think brands suddenly started to to realize that um, maybe women are the key to helping an industry that honestly right now is is suffering. Yeah. So. Well, tell me about the process, though, that kind of got you from point A to point B when Judd, your husband, said that of, hey, you could own your own bike, you know, I mean, so initially your reaction was, well, no, I can't. You kind of told yourself that, but then what nudged you towards saying, well, yes, I can, because I bet a lot of women, maybe that would be their initial reaction, but like, what's that process? And you're exactly right. That is a lot of women's initial reaction is just that, that feeling of when you see motorcycling, I think in a lot of the brands marketing, you see this, the, these aggressive riding aggressive people, adrenaline junkies, and that doesn't always appeal to women. Mm -hmm. But then I realized that that doesn't have to be me, that I can kind of make my own way in this sport and I can approach it in a way that I feel comfortable with. And so I I did um, the Motorcycle Safety Foundation course, which is a great introduction to motorcycling. And, and that taught me how to ride safely and gave me a lot of confidence. And really just started working in parking lots, working on skills. And I think for a lot of men getting into the industry, they, they can just go right out there and, and do it. But I think, I think women in a lot of ways tend to be more careful and we right. want to have, we want to have a good skill set and kind of inch our way along as we progress instead of going out there and crashing and then that's a good thing dialing it back <laughs> instead you know we approach I think women are a little bit more diligent in their approach in a lot of ways and so that really helped me build my confidence and then I realized that motorcycling education and training it's just like with PR and marketing if you want to be good at it it requires education and it requires learning and so really took that same approach to motorcycling and read a lot of books and watched videos. And I got a lot of coaching and did workshops and really tried to hold on to anything that I could that would help me become a better, safer rider. And I remember when I think you first hit maybe 10,000 Instagram followers, and then it just started to snowball and you're up to how many Instagram followers now? Almost 70,000. Wow. So just a little. I didn't little know it away. was quite at that number. I, I knew it was yeah. in the tens of thousands, but I didn't know it was quite at that level at this uh, it point. It seems like wow. only about a year ago you were at 10,000. Maybe it was more like two years ago. I, I think so. I think I, a year ago it might have been 20,000, maybe okay. somewhere around there. Yeah. I think what makes you such a great influencer is it comes from such a place of authenticity. And I remember asking you, like, are you going to plan to monetize this? And you're like, I just do it because I love it. And I think brands are looking to connect with influencers like you who are very specific to a niche. You're a micro influencer and there's real authenticity about everything you do. Yes, I, I think that's really the key to it. And and in a lot of the posts that I do on Instagram, I want people and especially women to understand just some of the struggles with being a motorcyclist and progressing 
in the sport. And so I, I try to be honest. If I go to a track day event and I'm not performing the way I want and I have some mental roadblocks, I'll, I'll talk about it and share how I was able to overcome that and really try to be just super honest about some of the, the challenges throughout the process. But, but with brands, it's to me, it's really a partnership with them. And I'm so thrilled that motorcycle brands are really starting to see that women can be such a great audience. And, and so I think it enables them to get outside of their own audience and tap into someone else's. And so it's been really great. I've had some great, um, I would, I would call it really uh, relationship building. And so I think it goes on just beyond just promoting products, promoting brands, and it's building a relationship with them. And I've had the chance to work with Yamaha a couple of times in Triumph and uh, have a great relationship with um, a helmet brand and leather suit brand. And it's an ongoing relationship where it's not just like doing one post, it's it's working with them on series of posts or launching new products or when they have new bikes that come out, being there to test them out and talk about them. And, and I think that's something that brands appreciate is having that relationship. Well, I think it has brought a lot to our client base too, because we do offer influencer marketing as one of our services. And so for you to be able to see it from the other side, from the brand side and how they interact and what the goals are, has helped us to hone the way we deliver our influencer marketing programs too. Definitely. It's been extremely helpful because having been on the side of, of the influencer, it's helpful to know what's attractive to me when people reach out to me, what makes me want to respond and what makes me want to work with them. And then I think from the other side too, having worked with influencers for clients, it helps me understand, okay, I have an idea of what brands want to get out of this. And so I think it, it goes both ways and it's been really eye-opening. It's interesting to me that there's, it seems like this incremental step-by-step. Step. So you started from this very foundational point of, oh no, I can't even have my own motorcycle, just in your own mind of like making the leap from there to just having the comfort level to ride your own motorcycle and learning just the ropes of safety and just all of that to then making the leap of doing track events, which that's a, that's a big leap going from just pleasure riding out on the road to doing track events, right? How much time was between just learning the safety and doing just being out on the open road to doing those kinds of venues or doing those kinds of events. Oh, right. And, and that's, that's a very good point. It, it is a lot of different steps yeah, along yeah. the way. And I think starting out, it was, it was actually a year before I did my first track event. Right. And, and that's actually, and track, I think is something that I've been trying to have motorcyclists understand that you don't have to be this aggressive racer to do track days. Mm -hmm. uh, track days actually offer a lot of instruction and coaching. And it's actually a lot more, it's a safer environment to learn than the road because oh, you don't yeah. have to worry yeah. about someone hitting you head on. You don't have to worry about distracted drivers texting or a truck running into the back of your bike. Everyone's out there going the same direction. They have different levels. You're with folks who are the same level as you. And then there's lots of coaching available classroom sessions in between the track sessions. So it's a big learning event. And so 
So I started within a year and that really helped my writing, helped me build a lot of confidence. And then I just kept doing more, more track days and more instruction. And then actually just this year, I've been working towards, um, I've been doing some little racing events on a, on a mini bike, but I'll, I'll be doing my first real race on my race bike in 2021. So this year I've been spending that working towards that. And to me, I, I can't believe I'm, I'm doing this 10 years ago. I would have said, there's no way I would ever race. It's not going to happen, but I've received a lot of support from the brands that I work with. And I think the influencer work has given me a lot of confidence and through that process, I've actually gotten to meet and connect with a lot of women riders and racers. And I owe a big part of my riding to the women who have been so supportive to me. And I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without having a whole bunch of women along the way being there to tell me that, that I can do it. And the reason why I'm racing is because of a group of women racers who have been very supportive. That's and, so cool. Uh, I think is just really inspiring, truly, because this is a story about a professional woman who challenged herself, got out of her comfort zone and just, and really, I mean, you just sort of self-directed your way to do this. And I, th I think that that is just a really inspirational thing that I think across our profession, because we are a female dominated industry, I think that's something that, you know, all of us should look to as yeah. an example. I, we um, can do anything that we set our minds to do. And it doesn't, we don't have to stay in the box, like you said, of, I can't ride a motorcycle. I, I like high heels and makeup. Well, you know, you look really good doing it too. And oh, your leather you. suits that you wear. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah there, there's, there's no question she's an influencer yeah. Yeah, for a reason, for many reasons. And I do want to ask, you know, part of the question too, that I had was when you decided to move forward with pursuing that goal of being an influencer. Initially, were you making some outreach to brands and developing an initial relationship there? And then did that sort of just become a symbiotic thing where then they were then reaching out to you and it became really a two-way back and forth? Yeah, I, I would definitely say it's been a two-way back and forth. And, and I started without the intention of being an influencer and started just posting some of my motorcycling oh. photos. Okay. So and yeah, so it started really organically of the brands noticing you in social media first with just the things that you were posting, the images and just the experience and the following base that you were growing organically then. Yeah. It, it's actually been a, a really interesting process because it started with posting some photos and I noticed they received really good engagement. And all of a sudden my followers started growing a lot with these motorcycle photos. And so I started sharing more of them. And then when I started to receive some outreach by brands, I realized maybe this is something I can do. And it's kind of interesting because the first time a major brand reached out to me, I told my, my husband, I said, Oh, Scorpion, this major helmet mm -hmm. uh, manufacturer has reached out to me. And he kind of laughed and was like, oh, are you sure it's not like a scam account? You know, are you sure it's really them? And uh, it was kind of funny. I was like, no, I was like, I, I really, I really think it is. The guy emailed me and the, you know, the email address seems to check out. We had a good conversation, you know, and Scorpion reached out to me when I didn't have a very large following. 
and they sent me like four brand new helmets and pants and jacket and all this stuff. And I couldn't believe it. But because they did that for me, I've been very loyal to them. And now even later, I don't wear anything else, you know, but scorpion helmets because they've been there for me from the beginning. And it's been this wonderful ongoing relationship. They had a new helmet that came out that they recently sent to me. It's part of the helmet launch. And, and it was, it was really cool just, just to have that. And then, uh, when I, began working with other motorcycle brands. Like when Triumph reached out to me about working with them, like each time I was like, oh, is, is this real? Is this like, is this a, a scam or is it really this brand? And and so I didn't have a lot of confidence in it at first. And it, I think it took some time and of working with brands to, to realize it. And I actually had a, a good friend, you know, I told her one time, I feel like I'm not this world renowned motorcycle racer. I'm not like a world renowned like motorcycle author or anything. And and I said, you know, sometimes I feel like I don't deserve what I get, the things that I get to do and and the products. But, you know, she told me, you know, never discount like the hard work that you've put in with your writing. I have a blog that I do and and I've been I'm a, a journalist for motorcycling magazines and you know, she said, just don't, don't discount yourself and just accept it and try to stay confident. And I have received comments sometimes about why do you get to do this when there are very successful racers who, who don't get this kind of support from brands. Now, now who says that uh, is what I want to know. Just right. random people. Um, yeah. And part of, I think part of having, I guess you consider it a, a large following on social media is that I've received so much support from people but there's always going to be this few people who they're jealous negative. or negative. And, yeah. and, that, and that's been, I think, something that's been a, a difficult thing to learn to deal with. But I will say that I have out of 70,000 followers, I can count on one hand the amount of negativity that I've received from people. And so I try to consider that very positive. Um, that's great. But it's really been, I think, the community of women that's really blown me away. And it's a very, I think it's a very, very special community in that you have women who are technically competing against each other and, you know, competing for support from brands, or even you could consider it competition when a brand has an influencer event and they fly out 40 influencers, they're only picking 40. And so some people are going to make it and some not. And so even though there's competition in that aspect, I think everyone is just, they praise each other and they tout each other. And it's been a very, very cool thing to see. Well, I'd like to pivot the conversation toward our, one of our service offerings, which is influencer marketing programs. Can you talk a little bit about how we go about designing and crafting an influencer campaign and what types of businesses are a good fit for influencer marketing? Sure. So I really think a lot of businesses can be a good fit for influencer marketing because it does help you get your brand in front of an audience that you wouldn't otherwise be able to work with. And and although we we do a lot of digital and social media advertising for clients, what can really help grow a following on social media is tapping into other larger accounts. And so a lot of times with our clients, if they're looking to grow their social media presence and following, tapping into influencers is really critical 
to seeing your account grow. And that's something that, that I learned from my own account. One of the reasons my Instagram account grew so quickly is other accounts that were a lot larger than mine were resharing my post and that really helped grow my account quickly. And so when we work with brands, we'll seek out influencers who have a really solid following, but we also look at other criteria as well. We want to make sure that the influencer has a good engagement rate because that means that they're really resonating with their audience well. And so we use uh, Social Blade to pull an influencer report card as well that gives us a lot of data on them. I think a lot of the research ends up being manual. So I mentioned Triumph Motorcycles before. They did a huge influencer event where they flew 40 motorcyclists to Arizona to try out their new bikes. And it was a, a really big event. I'm sure they put a lot of a lot of money into it. But I asked them, I was curious. I said, you know, how how did you end up picking your influencers? And I was thinking they probably put everyone into like a computer program and spit out, you know, 40 people. But they said no, they really did a lot of manual work, a lot of manual research into finding the people who would be the right fit to promote their brand in that instance. And they were looking for some, a lot of variety, a lot of different criteria. And one of the things they they mentioned that they picked me for was the social aspect of, of how I work with a lot of women and really ingrained in getting, um, have a passion for getting women into the sport. And so I think with our clients, it's the same thing. We look at a lot of metrics with getting influencers on board, but we also just really dig into their account, their type of post. And, and sometimes we'll find an account that maybe they don't have that huge following, but their account is growing and it's on an upward trajectory. So we can get in with them in the beginning and have that relationship. How do you feel about being paid for posts versus posting organically? And I don't think you accept fees right now for your own personal influencer account. But, you know, we do sometimes pay influencers in our company as part of the strategy. What do you think makes an influencer want to work with a brand without being paid? Maybe just in exchange for product or review or... So I think it depends on the person for sure. But I know for a lot of influencers, it really depends on how valuable that product and brand is to them. And are they offering something of value to the influencer? Because if it's a product that they're really not going to use, either they're going to want payment in order to promote it, or they may not even want to promote it at all because they want that authenticity with their audience. And so, for example, we have we have a client that we we've been working with on an influencer program and uh, we were using products to get influencers on board. And so the influencers that we found that really wanted to work with this brand were people who were really passionate about products for their animals. That's something that was important to them. And they found value in the products that the brand was offering. They, They wanted to use them. Right. Well, of course, um, the Federal Trade Commission has some really specific rules about disclosures of how influencer marketing has to be governed. And of course, as an agency, we make sure we shepherd that process for our clients and make sure the proper disclosures are done. Has a brand ever approached you, I wouldn't ask you to name names, but has a brand ever approached you and asked you 
to do any kind of exchange or a, a kind of marketing that you felt went outside what those rules are f- that the Federal Trade Commission has put into place regarding disclosure or regarding the rules of the road, if you pardon the pun, of how that needs to be done in the consumer interest, I guess. I think that's a really good question. And I think I've been very lucky in regards to the brands who have reached out to me and the ones that I've ended up working with. They've really given me free reign with the posts and to include what I need to include. They haven't said you have to post copy and paste and post this post copy. They've actually been very loose in terms of guidelines with the content and then also trusting me with the copy and how to format that. And I think for influencers in general, what happened with Fire Festival was oh, yeah. was a really big message to influencers. Well, why don't yeah, we tell our listeners a, a little bit about that? Watch that documentary. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that background? Just, sure. just in case some haven't heard about it. Yeah, I think that was a huge message to influencers because Fire Festival, they had a huge, huge influencer marketing behind launching their festival. And, and this is something where I think influencers really need to do their due diligence. When a brand reaches out to you to do a promotion and they say, we're, we're going to pay you or we're going to give you free product, whatever that agreement is, it's important to research the brand and research the project because not only can it impact your reputation, but in the case of Fire Festival, they paid celebrity influencers to promote the festival on their Instagram. But the festival ended up being just a complete flop and scam. And a lot of people lost their livelihood from this festival. There's a great, like Kelly mentioned, there's a great documentary on this on Netflix that talks about what happened with this event. But, uh, you know, the influencers got on board and they figured, you know, I'm, I'm getting paid for this and so I'm going to promote it. And that ends my responsibility with this. But that's really not not true because some of the influencers faced a lot of difficulty because they did not disclose that they were being paid to promote it. And so that was a very big issue. And then also just the issue of um, the reputation damage it did to them. Right. And I think that's about the time that the FTC released guidelines on disclosing if you have been provided with complimentary product or if you've received a fee. And so a question that we get a lot from clients is, do people really still engage with posts or content that is labeled as sponsored? And what's your perception on that? Sure. So I I think a lot of it comes down to when a brand asks me to do like if, if they send me like a photo of their product and they're like, well, will you post this to your Instagram in return for, you know, this or that payment or product? I say no, because to me, I don't I don't want to just post their product to my Instagram. I've I've worked hard to build it and to be authentic with it. And so I'll tell them I'll use your product and I'll post photos where I'm actively using it and and they always agree to that. They've been good because I don't want people to get on my profile and see my posts and to just feel like I'm advertising to them. I say no to products that I don't feel like I can use or that I don't think are very good or that. Just not relevant to exactly. your. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or relevant. And so 
it has to be something that is like means something to me. And so I include photos actually using it. And I won't post a glowing review if I don't think it's worth a, a glowing review. But but luckily, because I try to research everything or I'm already familiar with it, I haven't had any bad experiences um, where I've had to tell the brand that I just can't, I just can't post about this. But if I had to, I would. But then, you know, I think there's also ways to be authentic with it while also disclosing the fact that it's an ad. Right, right. I would love to talk a bit about your work with Fletcher Marketing PR on the media relations side because, you know, a big part of the work that we've always done for clients has been in the area of, of brokering positive and informative, but certainly truthful media coverage on a client's behalf to help tell their story in the media and um, just across a whole host of different contexts. Um, very often it's about just proactive storytelling and making sure that how a client is represented in news media helps to advance just that client's brand. And it's a really good supplement to other marketing communications that we're doing on behalf of that client. There can also be other opportunities or even issues that arise. There can be crisis issues that can arise for a client where we need to be able to help a client lend voice in the in the media from a responsive standpoint. So just a lot of different contexts there. And in 2020, there's just been so many additional layers of challenge with the COVID-19 issue. We have so many news media now that they have already been under so many so many stresses and strains with fewer resources. So within the context of all this maelstrom of different things, I wanted to get your reaction to what you're seeing out on the front lines in pitching for clients to media, developing strategy, trying to execute for clients on that type of area. What are you seeing out there? What's been your reaction to what you've seen this year? It's definitely harder. Pitching has become more difficult. And a lot of that is because newsrooms are understaffed in a lot of cases. A lot of publications have, have said they have a backlog of article submissions that they haven't gotten through yet. And so therefore they may right. not be accepting new article submissions or until you know 2021. And so what it's really done, I think, is it's it's made us have to take some different approaches and to figure out what do we need to get out there to media outlets and how do we need to package this for them. And so we've had to kind of experiment and I think we've learned a lot along the way. But I would say in addition to media relations and changing some of our pitch angles, we've also been counseling clients to have a blog post where they can develop thought leadership pieces and push them out. And now is an amazing time for social media. There's more people on social media than ever before. The cost per clicks on social media advertising is the lowest they've been in a long time. And so it's very cost effective. But media relations is still really important. And we've still had some really great success for clients. But just as an example, we had an event today where not all of the media could could make it out to the event because they are just under more pressure and uh, have a lot going on. 
And even though they couldn't make it out, what we did is we put together digital press passes and we had a photographer at the event. So we're packaging together all the photos and we have a post event news release and we put together all sorts of other great digital content pieces and materials that we're sending out to the media. And we've already gotten an agreement that, that they'll run it, but they really needed to have those resources and we tried to make it easy for them by putting together this digital press kit that would help take the work off of them mm-hmm. and make it easier. And so they'll publish the the story. And so that's very helpful. And then we've also had uh, a lot of media reach out to us and say, we want to cover events like entertainment related events. There's so few of them out there right now because of COVID. So we've been able to get publicity for events for clients, which has been helpful. Like we have a tourism client that we've been able to get good traction. And we've also found that, you know, with more people reading the news online right now, people love listicle type Mm -hmm. articles. And so we've turned a lot of our news releases into listicles and those have helped gain traction. So basically during COVID, we've just kind of learned to change our, our angles and Instead of just sending out a news release, we've had to make some different adjustments here and there. For sure. I think it's harder than ever to get media coverage in traditional ways, using traditional tactics that we have in the past. Um, I talked to a prospective client a few weeks ago on the phone and we went through what their service does and why they want publicity for it. And they asked my opinion and I was like, well, a year ago I would have said, oh, sure, like we can we can knock this out of the park. But in this media climate, we have to take a step back and really look at, are we going to be able to be successful for this client and be honest if the timing's not right? What I ended up doing with this prospect is just saying, let me float this to a couple journalists that I'm close to and get some feedback before we take your money and sign a contract because we don't ever want to take something we can't deliver. And that's a responsible thing to do. And I I think that just being upfront with clients to manage the expectations correctly and just being upfront with them that this is a different era that we're in right now. And, you know, just being upfront about that is very important. I mean, we're competing with a pandemic, politics, social uprising, mental health issues. I mean, there's so much going on right now that's competing for the attention of the media that in particular, lighter stories aren't as appealing as That's they right. used to be. Well, it, it, it's not necessarily news. right. Right. It's it's just not necessarily going to be realistic. The angles or approaches that would have worked, say, three years ago easily are not going to work this year. I mean, the same the same approach is not going to work necessarily. So I, I do think that in the year ahead, as this continues to evolve, we're going to just continue seeing more and more clients building their own branded media platforms so that they are controlling their message more and more. And it doesn't mean that external third-party media isn't important. It is. And I, I am critical of journalism a lot, and it's always because I want journalism to be the best that it can be because I think it's so fundamentally important for our democracy for it to be the best that it can be. And that means, of course, balance and truth and all of that. And we and we as public relations practitioners always we need to be doing our job in ethical ways to support that without question. 
But I, you know, I do think that brands are going to have to start because of this continuing change landscape and the fact that now that we have COVID-19 thrown into the mix and this is not something that's going away anytime soon and these pressures are continuing to bring themselves to bear for brands to be heard and for brands to be able to build the relationships they have to have to be competitive with all of these pressures brought on, they're going to have to build their own media platforms that are informative and ethical and visual. And have a strategy to get them out there so that they're actually consumed. And good, strong delivery systems and sophisticated. And, you know, we see the very large brands out there. They've been really doing this for years they may have called it something else or, you know, it, it, the nomenclature is changing and how it's described or talked about. But public relations needs to be driving this. Um, it does not need to be driven by advertising. Right. It does not need to be driven by other sub functions that really don't take into consideration core reputation and trust building. Agreed, agreed. A lot of what we're doing now is branded content, but there's always a purpose for it. You know, what is the purpose of this piece of content that we're developing on behalf of this client? Is it to educate a consumer? Is it to influence someone to support an organization or a charity? You know, what are we developing this piece of content to do? And how are we going to then distribute it on our own media platforms but get it seen by the audiences, the right people at the right time Mm -hmm. um, so that we see that it has some impact on some sort of call to action. Right. Um, And I guess one last question before we wrap up, I did want to ask you about crisis communications. And in the time that you've worked at Fletcher Marketing PR or, you know, even earlier in your career, in dealing with crisis issues and incidents on whether it's media relations or whether it's social media, what are just some of the best practices or things that you feel are really crucial for client success and that, that you also feel are kind of just evergreen tips or advice that you, you know, feel have to happen? Sure. So I, I think it, it's always important in a crisis situation for, for a brand to be ahead of it and to really think through what that message is going to be that they're going to push out and to try to get ahead of what you don't want is for other people to speak to it for you. And so it helps to, in any situation like that, to make sure that you've got good communication within that organization and to be able to get a message out there with the crisis uh, so that what you don't want is just for your customers or for people in the public to to be making assumptions. And so I think, you know, when I think about, especially early on in my career, you know, one of the first crisis situations where we had to get a statement out ahead of some, some news, I think it was helpful for the customers of the company to, to have a message, basically explaining the, the company's role in it and to push that out and to not leave people just to wonder about it because I think assumptions can be a very dangerous thing. But I think that's where for any organization and especially at Fletcher with our clients, that's something that we always make sure to work on with their leadership teams and to have a plan in place before a crisis happens because we've been working with a client who's a 
uh, works in risk management and captive insurance. And of course, during this COVID pandemic, this has been a lesson for a lot of companies in having a crisis plan. And so that before it strikes and before it happens, which one thing we've learned is that crises can and will happen. And COVID was a big one and we're probably gonna have another one and it could be a natural disaster, it could be a terrorist attack, it could be something very big. And I think COVID taught everybody that you need to be prepared. And so having a crisis communication plan in place before it hits so that we know the steps that need to be taken when it happens and you're not backpedaling is just so important. And so I think now more than ever, companies kind of have the aha moment of we need this. And I think for COVID, it, it's late, but it's never too early to start for the next one. Right. I think getting that Absolutely. urgency and that call to mm -hmm. action is so important. And getting the messaging. I remember at the onset of COVID, Mary Beth, you were a big proponent of we need to go ahead and talk to all of our clients right. now before it even got to crisis level in the U.S. Right. You know, we talked to every single one of our clients about how this could impact their business and how we might need to start working on preparedness. And, you know, some were responsive and some weren't, but we did our job, which is right. to bring it to their attention and say, look, we need to get ahead of this because there's a pretty good chance that we're going to be dealing with what Europe is dealing with in the coming weeks. So, well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank yeah, this you. has been great. <laughs> and uh, do tell our listeners about how they can best follow you. What are some of the handles they should follow? Sure. So if you want to follow my motorcycling journey on Instagram, it's Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, two underscores and Merrill, M-E-R-R-E-L-L. -L, and it's Sarah Merrill on Facebook and on YouTube. Awesome. And if you want to follow Fletcher, <laughs> you can follow us at Fletcher PR. You can follow me at Katie Fletcher or Mary Beth at Mary Beth West on Twitter. You can also find us online at FletcherMarketingPR.com. That's right. And listeners, we will respond to your questions and comments. So do post them using the hashtag misinterpreted. And that's hashtag MSinterpreted. And for visibility's sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. Everyone, thanks for joining us today. Please stay safe and well and remember to practice gratitude during this month. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time 